Hey there, welcome to The Third Seat. This is the show where we have open and honest dialogues with experts who have a unique perspective to share straight to you. I'm your host, Daniel Trinum with Croft & Frost, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode. As always, all links as well as relative information will be in the description of this episode down below. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's join into the conversation. Hi, thanks for tuning in today. This is John Hoppy with Cross and Frost, and uh, I'm taking Daniel's place today. Uh, I'm going to interview a friend of mine named Steve Twitty. Steve and I have been friends for many years, and uh, Steve has been a uh, entrepreneur. He's been a uh, biologist with uh, in the food industry. I guess that's how you. Uh, tournament and yep. uh, he's got some interesting stories and some interesting information I think you'll you'll really enjoy so please welcome Steve Twitty uh, Steve's home now is Bangkok is that right Bangkok Thailand and so tell us a little bit about your history in a in a brief note well uh, graduated from UTC and uh, got a job at uh, planter snacks on Jersey Pike it was back uh, Standard Brands was the uh, company that owned it. And then uh, after six years there working in production, uh, product development, and quality control, the company was taken over by Nabisco to become Nabisco Brands. And uh, they were setting up a factory in Singapore. So being unmarried and uh, nothing tying me down, I raised my hand and said I would definitely like to go to Singapore. And before I knew it, I was there. Two years in Singapore, working on ins installation of equipment, uh, training the people how to operate the lines, uh, and just overall overseeing the line. I was contacted by the International Division and said they wanted me to go to Venezuela. It was essentially the same thing, setting up a, another snack food factory, which I did. Two years in, in Venezuela, and then uh, was sent to Australia, uh, Sydney. Planters had a uh, nut factory there, and they wanted to set up a, a snack food factory also. I was there three years. During that time, they never set up a snack food factory. and But it was a fun job. I was factory manager of, of the uh, facility. And uh, at the end, they wanted me to stay, and I was getting kind of itchy feet, so I was ready to leave. And I was supposed to go to China. Nabisco was setting up a big factory in Beijing, but due to red tape and a lot of delays, they sent me to, uh, to Ecuador. And uh, I spent close to two years in Ecuador, both in Quito and then in uh, Guayaquil. Uh, after that, it was China. I was in China from 88 until 90. I was there during Tiananmen Square. And uh, at the end of 90, Nabisco, RJR Nabisco had been bought out by KKR uh, in New York, big leverage buyout. And I became a consultant. They wanted me to stay in China. After two years in China, I pretty much had it. So uh, I relocated where my wife at the time and my daughter, uh, who was about three years old, I relocated to Bangkok and I've been there since 1990. Uh, well, great. Well, one thing I wanted to uh, 
to mention is uh, you talked about Nabisco, and you also talked about um, is it uh, the company out of uh, New York that oh KKR yeah uh-huh. Colvin Kravitz and um, Roberts. I I just watched uh, per your. Uh, advice recently the movie uh, Barbarians at the Gate which uh, depicts that buyout uh, it's not the greatest of movies but it's kind of interesting just yeah. because of the sheer magnitude of the buyout right and um, so what was it like at that time when a when a huge company comes in and, and buys out the company you're working for well myself I was in China at the time and I, I knew what was going on I knew that uh, F. Ross Johnson was pushing hard to buy the company and other players got involved, including KKR. The bidding war went and then ultimately it was sold to KKR and uh, at that point what affected me most was that they began to sell off a lot of the Nabisco uh, factories. and. Uh, I was isolated from that in the U.S. because I was actually working for the Hong Kong company, Nabisco, and they, they were the ones that had me in China. Uh, so the only thing that happened to me was I no longer had a job with International, uh, and I became a consultant. And since then, since 90, uh, or yeah, since 90, I have been a consultant. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you you got uh, involved with the food industry kind of at uh, a base level. You were a biologist, is that right? Yeah, I got a degree in in biology and I was interested in going into veterinary medicine, but Tennessee didn't have a veterinarian school at the time. I went to Auburn for for one year and did not get into veterinarian school. I came back, I could have reapplied, but by then I was looking at other uh, other areas and got a job at what was then Planter Snacks on Jersey Pike and uh, they were looking for a research technician so I was hired in to develop new snack foods and I, I was able to use a lot of biology and starches and, and different types of raw materials learned a lot about them uh, understood basics uh, built on that and then from there, I worked in different departments, which gave me a lot of information about processing and understanding how the equipment worked. From the ingress of raw materials through to the finished product. Mm-hmm. So when the job came up about going to Singapore, they were looking for somebody who had a very rounded education in, in the food industry and I fit that bill. Mm-hmm. So you, um, so when you went in, you had to not only uh, install the processes and see that the machinery was, was what it should be and then work with the people themselves, right? And plus it was not just the management, you had to work with the sub-management or the next level and then you had to work with people on the line, is that right? Yeah, th- that's correct. Yeah. What was it like working with all those different people? What, what would you, uh, what would you, you know, compare it to, or, or what was it like? Well, comparing, I, I guess, wow. Uh, in Singapore, everybody speaks English, which made that job very easy. But that wasn't always the case, right? Definitely not. After, after uh, uh, Singapore, I was asked by my boss in New York 
do you speak Spanish? And I said, well, I had two years in, of Spanish in high school, but I can say a few phrases and that's about it. So they sent me to New York. I took six weeks of Berlitz Spanish, and then they relocated me to, to uh, uh, a little town called La Victoria in Venezuela. And I lived in Maracay, and I picked up Spanish very quickly because there was only one person in the factory who spoke English. Yeah. Everybody else was only Spanish. Well, I've heard that that's really the way to learn a language. Positively. You, you get put in the, uh, the, the country whose language you want to learn, and, and you know, you need to know certain phrases, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, otherwise you're stuck, you know. Yep. So you learn much quickly than in a classroom. Yeah. And I, I began to understand the, as I learned Spanish, that even if I couldn't communicate with somebody, I could get a message across, though sometimes messages got mixed up and, and people did something they weren't supposed to do. Overall, it worked out really well. Now you, you had, not just Spanish, you had to work with other languages along the way. Uh, did you ever use a translator or other people to help you communicate with the staff? Or? Yeah, after, uh, after Venezuela, I went to Australia, three years there, and then that was after that, I went to Ecuador. Spanish, so I had no problem there. From there, I went to China. Spent two years in China at a biscuit factory, manufacturing biscuits and, and crackers. And I didn't speak Chinese. I, I wanted to learn it. I began, but still getting a, any, any type of conversation uh, was, was just not going to be, especially with the amount of time that I was able to devote to trying to learn the language when I was worrying about all this production stuff. But I had a translator. And the translator, I would explain something to the translator and I never really knew if he was explaining <laughs> it exactly like that to the, to the uh, uh, person that was there. And there were many times that I would try to get something done or something changed that was being done. And it, it just did not happen. Oh, so and, what did you uh, do when that? Well, I would go back and explain it again. With dealing with another culture and another language, you can't get angry with them. I've, I've worked with a couple of people in the international who were unable to control their temper sometimes because it does get frustrating occasionally. But overall, you've got to be able to maintain your cool as, as much as you can and get the point across because it's the end result that's important. Yeah. Now, now you, did, you worked with the, the people on the line, but you also had to deal with management and everything. What, what advice would you give somebody else who uh, maybe has fallen into such a position of whether it be management or consulting um, you know what's what can you do when you've got all these different levels to of you know culture and language and uh, business experience and manufacturing experience I mean what, what would you say to somebody that um, has to install a process or even run a company with all that different diversity what would be your advice? With, with the people you're dealing with, with folks that almost all of them, like in China, did not speak English. Uh, if you're dealing with upper management, everybody that I dealt with in upper management in every single country that I lived in, uh, they spoke English. Okay. So getting across to them was okay. Uh, 
I did some work in Japan with Yamasaki Nabisco. Everybody at the table spoke English, even the, the highest guy, but they all spoke Japanese only. And I had a translator, even though they could understand what I was saying, and they could speak English also. So culturally, they, they stay with Japanese, and you have to appreciate that. Uh, China was, again, it was a, a difficult time sometimes in the factory. Management-wise, China at the time, this was 1988, China was just then coming out of the communism. And Deng Xiaoping was the premier. Uh, he had been making changes. Everybody was beginning to see that in the country very slowly, but the local people, people in the factory, were still of that same mind. And uh, they, they did things that a lot of times didn't make sense, simply because the, the Chinese way to, of doing it is get out as much product as you can. It doesn't matter about quality. It just matters, get it out. And that's what we were getting. So it was a very big struggle with that. Uh -huh. And even management was kind of stuck in that, that mind frame. But slowly, things improved. And uh, China today, the whole country has been able to change. And, and so quality is, is, is better than it uh -huh. was. Well, let's get away from business for just a minute. Um, so um, you've had to go to all these different countries and adapt to language, culture, you know, where you live, um, you know, uh, a plethora of things when you travel. I mean, it's, it's one thing when you live in the United States and you go to another city, and, but to travel to another country, it's, uh, uh, you know, got to be a lot of things to, uh, to get uh, used to. So what, what was that like? Were you just open-minded so that you found an adventure or was it something, a hurdle you had to get over? Or? No, definitely not. When, when I <clears throat> was given the job in Singapore, I wanted it. They, I met the, the project manager, I met a uh, Indian man who was Singaporean. And in, after meeting him, we were talking and I said, I'd love to go to Singapore. They were amazed. So I got the job. After that, my boss said, why don't you come back to New York and work out of the office and then you can fly around the world and do this and that. I told him I don't want to live in New York. Keep me overseas. And he did for the whole time that he was in the company. Uh, I looked at, after two years in Venezuela, I really enjoyed Venezuela. This was the early 80s and it was a pretty good economy. It was fairly safe. The jungles, the, the fishing, everything else that was there and the work was, was really, really good. But after two years, I was ready to, to move on. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden, there's, there's uh, uh, Australia. Oh. So I went to Australia and uh, panning for gold, uh, you know, manager of the factory, had a really nice apartment and it was just a good life. After three years though, uh, they asked me to, to stay on and I contacted my old boss because I was working for the, for the uh, Australian company. Contacted my old boss and said, what is there around here that, uh, uh, around the world that I might be able to do? 
He said, well, we got a project in China that's developing, if you're interested in that. Heck yeah, I'll, I'll go to China. So by the time I got ready, China was still on hold because of a lot of Chinese government red tape. And uh, so they sent me to, to Ecuador. And uh, I kind of looked at it originally as a consolation prize, but it turned out to be very interesting. I worked in a factory, a little town called Lasso, and it is right at the base of Cotopaxi which is the world's highest active volcano. Oh. It had snow-capped. Snow uh, factory was always getting these little tremblers uh, from earthquakes, and it was a magic place. Lived in Quito a year there, and they transferred me down to Guayaquil, worked in a, a uh, Royal Productos uh, factory where they did puddings, flan, different types of products like this, dry mix. and. So I worked there for another nine months, and after that, China was ready, and I packed up and headed for China. Wow, that's just, that's that's amazing! All these places. So it, you must have had a lot of time consumed by your job, obviously, uh, uh, being responsible for a lot of different things, right? In, in the uh, installation, and then you manage the facility. Right. Um, how did you find time for yourself? Uh, what was that? How do you do that? Well. I'm, I'm very active. I don't like, there's things that I, I like and I don't like. I don't like being late. I don't like wasting time. I don't like people that, that do that, that where we'll leave at 3 o'clock and at 3.30 you're still waiting. That drives me crazy. So I try to fill in every bit of time that I've got with something, whether it's five minutes or whether it's five hours. and. One of the things that I did early on was I, I read a book, I don't remember the title of it, but after reading it I thought I could write a book better than this. So I took adventures that I had had in Venezuela and turned that into my first book. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That was when I was living in, uh, in Australia when I started it. I was fortunate enough to have a, a retired editor who was my neighbor. She looked at what I was doing, gave me a whole bunch of, of pointers. Oh, that's cool. And helped me develop that. And uh, so I set that book aside, still haven't gone back to write it, uh, finish it, and started working on others. But I would do it sitting in airports, oh. uh, sitting on a plane. Mm -hmm. Anytime I had some extra time, I would either start developing ideas or I would work on one or two chapters or whatever I had to do. So uh, tell us uh, some of the titles of your books and where we could go and uh, check them out if we wanted to. Uh, I've got two books on Amazon. The first one I published was Tear Beneath the Bayou, and it's a science fiction book. And it's essentially a 1950s type monster book, uh, monster story. And it was a lot of fun to write. I finished it, had it edited. I've got an editor, he's actually American, uh, lives in Bangkok also. And he uh, helped me, he'd do the editing. I would rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And then once I felt it was good enough and he felt it was good enough, I published it on, uh, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. The second book I did was Saving Moses. 
And Saving Moses is a, it's a story that takes place in the early 60s. And there are four young boys, preteens, who get into a lot of mischief. It is a story that people who have read it say it's at the end of the story that they're crying, which is what I wanted. Uh, then uh, a book I, I wrote and am rewriting again. Originally it was called uh, Lost Between Lines. And this is a very cryptic mystery. I've changed the title, working title, to Betwixt and Between. And it's essentially about a character who doesn't know where he is. He, he knows he's in New York City, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't know how he got there. Uh, nobody has names that make any sense. And ultimately, he finds that he's supposed to hunt for somebody and because that one person has all the information that he needs. But getting to that person proves to be a really, really big problem for him. Well, all those sound interesting. In fact, I've started reason, reading your Moses book, by the way, and uh, I'm, I'm really uh, uh, kind of drawn into it, so that's great. Very good. So they, you, uh, people can find your books on Amazon. And, they can uh, find Saving Moses and uh, Terror Beneath the Bayou on Amazon. And it's under Stephen A. Twitty? Yeah, Stephen Twitty, Stephen A. Twitty. Okay, great. Hey, you. Whatever. Hey, you. Okay. <laughs> I'll try that. Uh, the other two, what I want to do is not publish on Amazon anymore. I, w I don't want to do it simply because it requires a huge amount of marketing oh. to sell books on Amazon. Yeah. It's an easy idea, easy, easy format. But once you're on there, if you don't promote the book heavily, it doesn't sell. I see. Yeah, I want to advice. find an agent. I want to be able to publish this in the, the standard publishing, uh, find some publishing company that'll take a chance, do the next two books, which is Betwixt and Between, and a story that came from my sailing days uh, about a woman, young girl, uh, who graduates college, gets on a boat with a man that she had met before, and they start sailing from uh, Guam to Hong Kong. And four days out, he falls overboard while she's, she's sleeping, and she has no idea how to sail, and she's stuck out in the middle of the ocean okay. now. That story was told to me by a sailor friend, and I've never been able to verify whether it's, it's true oh, okay. or not. Uh-huh. But sounds like a movie in the making. Oh, I, I that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Uh, well, hey, let's uh, let's get back a little bit into business. Um, you um, you have your own company, is that correct? I do. Yes. And, and what's the name of the company? Food Systems Design okay. Asia. And is it uh, based in Bangkok? The offices are in Bangkok, and then we use Singapore as our financial hub. Uh huh. Interesting. So, um, tell us a little bit about your company. I mean, I don't want to give it away because we talked about it a while, but um, you started your own company and then you decided um, that you needed um, somebody besides yourself. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, when I lived in the States, in college and just out of college, 
I started companies. I had ideas. I'm a, I'm a good ideas person. And at that time, I was very young, and I felt that, okay, I can do this myself. So I, would, I developed a uh, game company. I actually had a partner, but he was an artist. That's all he did was artwork. I ran the company. It was a game company. Battle of Chattanooga, America's Cup hang gliding game, Triad, uh, which is based on an old Egyptian game. And wanted to go into marketing of this. We had it for sale, we were selling product, but I did not know enough about business at the time to know that I should not tr be trying to do everything. And eventually the, the company just went under and, and that was it. I later on came up with the idea of Earth Lover Snacks, which were healthy snacks packed in environmentally friendly packaging. And again, this is when I was doing everything myself. I felt that I could do it all, which I could not. As time went by, I realized that, that uh, the Clint Eastwood character, Dirty Harry, in the movie has a very good line that I learned late in life, and that is, know your limitations. <laughs> And I true? eventually did learn my limitations. And when I set up food systems design, I knew that I could not handle the company all myself. I focus on the technology part of it. So I got a partner. He's uh, European. He was also living in Bangkok. And he covers the commercial side of it, which I don't do very well with. I focus on the technical side, which he doesn't do very well oh, yeah. with, and we accent each other. That's great. So if, if anybody has an idea for going into business doing something, just remember that everybody is good at something, and whatever you're good at, stick to that. Yeah. Well, you, you told me a story uh, at lunch, and I, I'm going to let you tell it, but uh, the thing about the foot under the table, so what, what's the scenario? <laughs> When we have meetings with people, we have a technology that we developed for baking a, a Pringles chip instead of frying it. So you get much less oil and the variety of, of healthy ingredients that you can use, okay. which you can't when you fry. And when we go into meetings, I focus on technology and when I start to talk, we may have a vice president, we may have marketing, sales, all of these people who are non-production. Sure. Uh, they're listening, they want information, and I get started with talking the technology. And it just it drags on. I can see the people click off and they don't want to hear any of that. They want, they want numbers, they want all this, you know, the, the basis of, of, of the, uh, the project. So Dante will tap me a couple of times because he always sits next to me because he knows exactly the way I am. And he'll tap me and I will stop immediately. And he'll pick up from there. Under the table. Under the table, uh -huh. of course. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, it's worked out very well. Yeah. 
Well, another interesting thing that you told me was that um, you didn't search him out. He came to you, is that right, your, your partner? Right, back in the early 2000s, my company was doing a project in China for Pringles. We set up a, a new Pringles line for them in, uh, uh, in China. And during that time, I began to develop the baked stackable chips. And I had samples. There was a trade show in Bangkok at the time. And my partner's name is Dante. Dante had been working for, he was a sales representative in Asia for uh, a German company called Hastamat, Loesch Hastamat. They do packaging equipment. He was there, all the salespeople were there from around the world, and at one point we had a meeting. I had these samples, and I passed them around, told everybody, if you have customers interested in making a Pringles chip, but baked instead of fried, then let them see these and let me know. Dante was in that meeting. He tried some of the chips, and afterwards, everybody uh, left the room, he came over to me and he said that he would like to invest in my company because of these chips. Which, wow, that's, that's great. I could use the money. So we talked and he said, I don't only want to invest in it, I want to, I want to take part in it. So we discussed our strengths, our weaknesses, okay. and he very quickly realized that, okay, I'll take the uh, commercial part and you, Steve, you take the, the technology and that'll do it. So he, do, he does the marketing, very good at that. Uh, sales, we're not yet at that. And he also does the commercial side. Sets up the meetings with, with uh, various potential buyers. Wow. And uh, we're talking to companies in England now, Algeria, and uh, Turkey. Yeah. Which, um that frees you up to do what you do best, right? Yes, positively. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't don't get that when they start out a business. Uh, they try to do it all. Uh, don't want to trust anybody. And uh, I'm sure that was, it was kind of a a process for you too. But uh, it sounds like it was a uh, a good fit. It it really is a f good fit. When I first started, I like with Earth Lover Snacks. I looked at it that okay. I started this business, it was my idea. I started it, and therefore, what I, whatever I can make out of it is mine. And with time, of course, with everything that goes on in a business, one person can't do it. And so everything just kinda, you reach a point where your, your brain is saturated, you don't wanna put up with the frustration of trying to deal with all this. You really, you're totally blinded as to how to move forward and everything just shuts down. Ah. Uh, what I learned, and I, I was told this, I don't remember who told me, but in looking at Food Systems Design Asia, selling portions of it, uh, the, uh, the patent that I have for the baked stackable chips, selling portions, percentages of the patent, it's better to make a percentage of something than 100% of nothing. <laughs> and the two companies I had started out previous to that, 
were a 100% of nothing. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's a that's definitely something to learn, right? So let's back up to your travels. I mean, gosh, I, I'm trying to think of some place you haven't lived. What's what's one story you want to share? Uh, uh, an unusual experience or something that uh, amusing or I mean you've met so many people in so many different countries and um, well let's see uh, Lordy there's a lot <laughs> <laughs> uh, well I, I mentioned this at lunch and you said maybe we don't need to bring that up. I think it's okay. Go ahead. To me, to me, it's a funny story. <laughs> I lived in Venezuela and uh, Maracay, worked in La Victoria, which is about 15 miles away, and they had a a pavilion at one point where people from the region could come, bring their wares, sell different things. And they had big tent pavilion where they, they sold beer and, and food and stuff. So me and three or four friends went to the pavilion. They were Venezuelan. We went there, got some beer, uh, had dinner. We were leaving, and there were a lot of booths on this road going out to where everybody was parking. And most of the booths were manned by Colombians. Colombians and Venezuelans don't quite get along well. So we stopped at one booth. They made these little glass animals, blown glass animals, and one of the guys picked up the, the uh, glass animal and accidentally dropped it. The man who was behind the booth was Colombian, and he pulled a pole out, about three-foot pole, and wagged it at the guy and said, you're gonna pay for that. One of the guys in my group grabbed the pole and whacked the guy on top of his head, the Colombian. And that's when we found out that everybody around there was Colombian. Oh. They, they came from everywhere and there were fisticuffs. I was involved in it uh, with you know, no fault of my own. The police very quickly came, grabbed all of us, and I did not have my passport with me at the uh -oh. time or my cedula, which is a residence card so I was uh, hauled off to jail too oh no spent eight hours in jail and then the wives of some of the guys came down and and uh, got us out yeah so uh, that was one of the afterwards it was amusing uh-huh now that's that's a little more interesting than, than my story of driving through uh, Fairmont Georgia and getting pulled over but uh, so uh, tell us um, uh, tell us about um, is there anything you you know being from Chattanooga and you've seen the world is there anything you you miss about Chattanooga or this area or I know you you, you, you've, you haven't seen it all of it uh, for years and you've discovered all the changes that have come about is yeah well I, I think what What's happened to, to Chattanooga is fantastic. I left in uh, the States in 81, and every time I came back, I saw Chattanooga changing. Downtown area has changed. The, uh, uh, I don't think the aquarium was there in 81. Uh, I don't think so. So that's been, that's been put in. The, the river's cleaner now. Mm -hmm. Everything is is much better than it used to be in that respect of, of quality. 
the city's grown uh, a lot more uh, housing overall Chattanooga has really improved and I'm really pleased to see that I lived I left America when I was 31 years old and I turned 72 this year so I've been out of the country longer than I've been in the country so when I first come back I kind of miss Thailand and being overseas two maybe three weeks and I'm ready to go I've been here now for six weeks going on seven and I've got the itch plus I've got a project in Turkey that I have to get to so, uh -huh. so I'll be leaving uh, in a couple of weeks no doubt to go back to Thailand get my visa for Turkey and then head on over mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do miss I do miss Chattanooga uh -huh. so um, seeing all these different places and um, your business and everything and your personal life what do you feel like your biggest challenge has been uh, throughout the years Wow I guess my big, biggest challenge is trying to trying to figure out where I fit in huh. uh, should I move back to America should I stay in Thailand uh, I I am more comfortable being overseas most of the time I come back here and it, it, it's nice it's a life that I, I lived before and I, I certainly understand it living overseas you see a lot of things things different things and a different way of life it's a lot more interesting here every day seems to be the same day kind of oh. like Groundhog Day it's, uh, it's <laughs> a repeat so I, I really prefer to live overseas and relate to people who have lived overseas or who are living overseas now is it is it maybe you think a mindset you're you're you kind of ingrained that into your uh, your thinking or your uh, enjoyment of life is that experience in so many different places uh, I know you've been in Bangkok for a while but you still move move around the world really yeah I've worked in the in, in Middle East North Africa uh, all through Europe Asia of course all through Asia and I knew that I wanted to be overseas when I was a kid I had my uh, paternal grandmother was from Norway my maternal grandmother her family was from Germany and I was just fascinated with being in those countries so all growing up as, as a kid I would always talk about seeing the world getting a sailboat and sailing around the world oh yeah uh, I actually had my uncle he was in the Air Force station in in Alaska I told him that I wanted to make a hot air balloon so I could float around the world this was in high school he sent me two parachutes that had been used to stop C-130s and I was going to sew them together and make a balloon out of it uh, of course I have never even tried <laughs> once I realized that it wouldn't work <laughs> I hung one one of the, uh, of the parachutes in my bedroom I like think a, I saw that like a tent I think I saw that yeah and the other one we would take down to the Chickamauga Dam tie a long rope to the shackle at the end of the, of the uh, parachute lines 
tie the other end of the rope to a, a tire. Sit, somebody would sit in the tire and, and let them let that wind pull them down the uh, pull them down across the grass. Oh, cool. Uh -huh, very cool. But that's what happened to those parachutes. Uh -huh. At any time um, in your uh, travels, did you feel endangered or did you feel uh, uncomfortable or um, like it was a bad situation? Yes. Uh, I think the country where I felt the, the, most, the most at risk was Egypt. Oh, yes. I think you mentioned that. Yeah. Uh -huh. It... Uh, when I left the, I'd been told by the people I was working for that uh, not to go out at night by myself. During the day I went walking, I was staying at a hotel in Giza, right next to the pyramids. And I, this before I transferred to 6 October, which was the town where the line was, processing line was. I went for a walk late morning and noticed this guy following me. And I stopped and kind of looked over my shoulder and he acted like, you know, he was looking at the birds or something. I turned around, figured I'm not gonna go any further. This guy is gonna mug me. Turned around and went back. Well, he followed me back. Turned out that he was security. Security at the hotel had sent him with me oh, to make sure that I was okay. Sure. okay. Interesting. That is really the only time I've ever really felt endangered. Uh-huh. Uh, Ecuador, Quito was, uh, there was a lot of thievery going on, breaking in cars and stuff, but physical uh, violence and stuff, I never felt. Oh. Uh, felt oh, that's nice. At, yeah, you know, that's good. Well, um, is there anything else you want to share about, um, about your life or about business? Uh, I know you've had, you've, you've, you have patents on processes and you have, uh, you know, abilities to sail, you write books, you make up, uh, make, design games. Um, what's next? <laughs> what's next? Good question. Write, writing more books for sure. Books, uh-huh. Uh, and just see what, what, what comes. I, I think in overall, Anybody that has an idea, develop the idea, and if it's going to be a business, make sure you bring in the right people to do the right jobs to get it done. And don't think that you need to control 100% of it, because in the end, you'll end up 100% of nothing. Uh, and don't waste time. As my daughter was growing up, I would always tell her, time is the only thing you can never get back. Don't waste it. And uh, so far she has done very, very well. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you. I hope that I get to see you again before several years go by and you're on the other side of the world. Um, so uh, thanks again, and uh, if you have any questions about uh, Steve's business, you know, hit us here at uh, Croft and Frost, and uh, otherwise, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.